Jesus' prayer on the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. After the sermon, we'll respond by singing from hymn 26. Hymn 26, after the proclamation of God's word. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, on Good Friday, we have another opportunity to see and consider the Lord Jesus for who he is and what he has done for us. Of course, we understand that he is our Savior. We understand that he died on the cross to save us from our sins, from the wrath of God. And yet it's good to be reminded of that. We need that reminder often, don't we? So that the truth of the good news continues to resonate in our hearts. So that this glorious truth continues to sink deeper and deeper into our conscience. We need this for our encouragement and our comfort. And so it's good to have a reminder again on Good Friday morning. This morning we will consider what our Savior meant means for us as we consider his own words, his own prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I've summarized the sermon in this way, Jesus' prayer on the cross grants ignorant sinners a stay of execution. We'll consider, first of all, the miracle of this prayer, the meaning of this prayer, and thirdly, the result of this prayer. Let's try for a moment to place ourselves at the foot of the cross, just to get ourselves into that scene, not just to imagine what it looked like, but to impress upon our minds what was really going on there. So there's the three crosses on the hill of Golgotha, and there's a crowd of people all around. The soldiers, whose job it is to execute these three prisoners, They've done this before. They're professionals. They go about their job quickly, efficiently, and without emotion. They've done it before. Then there are the leaders of the people, the members of the Sanhedrin, waiting in anticipation to see Jesus nailed to the cross. And then there are the crowds who followed him from Jerusalem. Many of them just, today we might call them rubberneckers. They were just there to satisfy their curiosity. Some of them felt sorry for Jesus. Think of the women who were mourning for him, as we read from Luke 23. And then there were the women who had followed Jesus throughout his ministry. And Mary, the other gospel, gospel, speak, gospel of John speaks about Mary being there as well. Jesus' mother. All of these people standing around the cross, some nearby, some farther away. But did they understand what was happening? None of them did. And Jesus' prayer makes it very clear that they did not. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And what is it that they are doing? The soldiers and Pilate and the Pharisees and the people who shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Well, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, none of the rulers of this age understood this, For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
So Pilate, the soldiers, the leaders of the Jews, and the crowds who followed them, they were, they were putting to death the Son of God, or they were standing there condoning his death. And it was no ordinary death. The Romans reserved the cross for the lowest of the lowest. If the Romans wanted to make a point, they crucified you. This is what happens if you defy Rome. And for the Jews, the cross signified the curse of God. But none of those standing there at the foot of the cross or on that hill of Golgotha understood what was going on. To the hardened Roman soldiers, it was just another crucifixion. And the leaders of the Jews were getting rid of someone who who threatened their authority. And to the majority of the Jews, this was just a man who had deeply disappointed them. Just a few days earlier, they had welcomed him into Jerusalem with their hosannas, calling him the man who comes in the name of the Lord. And now here he was, broken, bloody, pitiful, and hanging on a cross. But they had no idea that they were about to commit the worst crime in human history. They were rejecting the Son of God. They were about to kill the one of whom God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. They were rejecting the one whom God had sent to them. Jesus even said that himself. In Luke chapter 10, he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Well, if you think of it that way, then what would be God's response? What is God's response to those who reject him and his king? Well, scripture is very clear about that. John 3 verse 36, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Psalm 2, when the people gather together against the Lord and his anointed, God will terrify them in his fury. And think of how God responded to the wickedness of people in the past. Think of what happened in the days of Noah. He destroyed the world with the flood. And what happens when God sees the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah? He rains down fire and brimstone and destroys those cities. What did he do to Pharaoh and the Egyptians? They drowned in the Red Sea. And what does God do even with his own people when he is confronted by the wickedness and stubborn rebellion of his own people? According to Psalm 78, when his people turn away from him and provoke him to anger, he utterly rejected Israel. Through his prophet Jeremiah, God says, You have rejected me, declares the Lord, so I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I am getting tired of being patient with you. And isn't the evil that happened on Golgotha much worse? What's happening here was described by the Lord Jesus in the parable of the wicked tenants. Luke chapter 20. Jesus told the parable about a man who planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. And then he went to another country for a long while. And when he sent his servants to collect the rent, they they hurt the servants, they beat the servants and sent them away empty-handed. Finally, he sent his beloved son, said, surely they will listen to him. But then they said, this is the heir, let's kill him. And Jesus said, what will the master do to those wicked tenants? He will destroy them. We understand this parable means that God will pour out his wrath on the soldiers, on the Pharisees, on the members of the Sanhedrin, on the crowd who is her- and those who are hurling taunts and insults at the Son of God. 
This means that this is the end of those people standing around the cross. They are finished. The end of everyone whose sins drove the Son of God to the cross. And that includes us, of course. But what happens? Well, a miracle happens. The Son of God himself, the one who's hanging on the cross, intervenes for these very people. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Is that what you would expect from the man who's hanging there on the cross? Can you imagine hearing those words standing there around the cross? And everyone could hear him, the soldiers and the others. Most people who die like that die with curses on their lips or cries of pain. But Jesus is praying for his enemies. In congregation, this prayer is a miracle of mercy. It is drenched in grace. Because what can the Roman soldiers expect except the wrath of God? What should be the wages for the people whose sin drives the Savior to the cross? Do sinners not deserve the cup which Jesus had to drink? But instead he utters words of mercy. Father, forgive them. As one author put it, as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. As soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. Father, forgive them. Well, what does this really mean? By them, we understand that he was speaking about the people who were standing around the cross. The soldiers, and the Sanhedrin, and the other people. And then there's the word forgive. And when we think of forgiveness, our minds immediately turn to the concept of of the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. But without faith and repentance, there can be no forgiveness. How can the Father forgive these people? They have not even repented. They don't even know what they've done. How could he forgive those Roman soldiers who have no idea what the gospel is? So what is Jesus really asking for? Well, congregation, Jesus knows full well the extent of the crime that's being committed. He is fully aware of what the people standing on the hill of Golgotha deserve. And the word forgive in this prayer is the same word that is used in the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke chapter 13. Perhaps you recall that parable. A man had a fig tree in his vineyard, and it didn't produce any fruit for three years, so he told his gardener to cut it down. But the gardener pleaded with the the owner of of the vineyard, and he said, let me fertilize it for one more year and, and take care of it, and if it doesn't produce fruit then, well, then you can cut it down. He said to the owner of the vineyard, sir, please let it be. And that's the same phrase that Jesus uses in his prayer, let it be. Forgive. That means give them time. Father, let them be because they don't know what they're doing. Give them an opportunity to repent. Give them time to produce fruit. So here, congregation, we see Jesus acting as our eternal high priest. He is interceding and pleading for his people. 
Earlier he had warned the daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And so now he's praying for these misguided people who are being urged on by their leaders, who are killing their own Messiah. Father, forgive them. Another question we need to ask is, why does Jesus pray to the Father? Does Jesus not have authority to forgive sins himself? Did he not forgive the sins of others during his ministry on earth? Think of the, of the paralyzed man who was let down through the roof in front of Jesus when he was standing inside a building. Right? He's, he forgave that man's sins. But the difficulty or the deficiency here is not in Christ, but in the people who are standing around the cross. They had not yet repented. They were rejecting him, so forgiveness could not yet be granted. And that's why he intercedes with the Father, so that God would still bring about their repentance. He is praying for a delay. He asks the Father to delay the deserved punishment. Father, let it be. Withhold your wrath. Be merciful. May these foolish and ignorant people be brought to repentance and forgiveness. So Christ here is not praying in opposition to the Father. Of course, God's wrath is poured out on sinners and rebels. And God does destroy those who reject his anointed one. But he is also a God of mercy. He is slow to anger, and he has much patience with his people. In this regard, it's also good to think back to what happened in the Old Testament. How did God respond to his people in the past? He allows time for repentance. During the time of Noah, it took many, many years for Noah to build the ark. There was a long time. There was plenty of time for people to repent. God gave the Canaanites 400 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Joshua before he declared that the wickedness of the Canaanites was full. And think how he treated, of how he treated his own people. Just read through the book of Judges, for example. God is long-suffering. He's slow to anger. He forgives again and again and again and brings his people back to him. And so Jesus is here praying in line with the will of his Father in heaven. After all, the Father had sent him for this very purpose, to suffer and die for the sins of such ignorant people. It was the Father's intent that his son should die. And so Jesus' prayer also means, Father, my work is not yet complete. If you destroy these people, my suffering will be in vain. I still have to die for them. Please allow me to finish my work. Jesus is asking the Father to postpone his wrath so that his work on the cross would not be in vain. And he's praying not only for ignorant sinners to be given time to repent, but that he also might have time to complete his task. And so, brothers and sisters, this prayer of the Lord Jesus includes all of us, doesn't it? He is interceding for sinners like those soldiers and the crowds on Golgotha, and for sinners like you and I. That is the goal of his prayer. But we also have evidence that there was a result on account of his prayer. The Father heard his prayer. The Father delayed the outpouring of his wrath. 
the world was not destroyed and life continued. Why? Because Jesus had to complete his work and atone for the sins of his people. And we see evidence of the fulfillment of Christ's prayer almost immediately because one of the criminals on the cross was the first person to respond and to reap the benefits of Christ's prayer. By a miracle of his grace, of God's grace, his heart turned to God and he turned to Jesus to receive forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus had just prayed for. And then Christ continues to hang on the cross. And then everyone receives a warning. There's three hours of darkness. Darkness, of course, implies judgment. And the crowds, of course, notice this. After all, how can you not notice when in the middle of the day the sun disappears and the day turns into night? And this is the warning. Judgment is coming, but there is a delay. It only lasts three hours And then the sun returns, so judgment is delayed. But the delay will not last forever. The very Christ whom you reject will come again in power and glory. But for now there is a delay. There is still time to repent. There is still time to acknowledge your sin. The sun came up this morning. So today is the day that the Lord has given you to repent. Every day is an answer to Christ's prayer. So let us be glad for every day that sinners receive, because this means that God is still being patient. He is still answering Christ's prayer. And for many people in the crowds at the foot of the cross, that delay meant their salvation too. We read about that from Acts chapter 2. Peter was preaching to the crowds. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you killed, and he was killed by the hands of lawless men. And then what happened? Well, the people responded, or some of them did. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 41, we read what happened. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Some of the very people who stood at the foot of the cross were perhaps in that crowd on the day of Pentecost. And they were saved because of Jesus' prayer. Maybe some of them had even heard Jesus' prayer, and now they understood what it meant. Of course, that doesn't mean that ignorance is an excuse, or that failure to recognize one's own sin is an excuse. Not at all. Christ's prayer is not that ignorance may lead to eternal life, but that repentance would lead to eternal life. Execution will not be permanently canceled for everyone who sins in ignorance. The day of God's judgment is coming, and it it will be Christ himself who presides on that last day over the judgment seat of God. But now he is praying for time. And this, too, is in line with what God did from the beginning. Right? When Adam and Eve sinned, God did not immediately wipe them out. 
Right? He forgave them. He delayed their death. He gave them time to repent and their children time to repent. And he promised that if they believed in the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, they would receive the forgiveness of sins. He gave them time to repent. And so today Jesus Christ continues to pray for his church. And he prays that all those whom the Father has chosen will come to faith. He is praying that the history of redemption might continue and come to its final conclusion. He prays that time would move forward so that Peter and the other apostles would have an opportunity to preach the gospel. And we read in the book of Acts how the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea and to Rome and to the ends of the world. He prays that a man like Saul of Tarsus would have time to repent and become a great missionary. He prays for a time that God would raise up men like Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Guido de Bre, so that the church would remain church. And he prays for time, time for us and our children, so that people like you and I, who were not yet born when Christ was crucified, would have time to repent and come to faith. So today, today too is a miracle. Today is an answer to Christ's prayer. So use it wisely. Let us use our time wisely that God has given us. The sun rose this morning because on the cross, Christ prayed for time for sinners like you and I. So let's use it wisely and rejoice in the day that God has made for us. Amen.